Hey, Mike. Hey, Tammy. How are you doing? I'm great. Okay. We should definitely do these intros every time after we've, because usually when we start recording, it's like, hey, Mike. Hey, Tammy. We need the, How are you? We I'm need, tired. Right. We need some more we energy. Need to, we need to get talking and yes. then be so we, this, anyway. This was great. <laughs> this is great. This was great. It was great. Okay. All right. So let's, uh, we need to do something. We're introing. We are introing. Right yes. Now. I'm confused because we just wrapped up an interview. We wrapped it up with what the heck. Yeah. We're all, um, we're all back. So we're going to be out of order today okay. and that's fine. We sat down. Fix it, Steve. Fix it, Steve. No. We went, we sat down with the wonderful Chris Hislop. International man of mystery. International man of mystery. Stanley Tucci doppelganger. Absolutely. He is currently in Ukraine mm-hmm. um, and sat down with us for a bit and as always, like every time we've talked to him, I learn a whole lot mm-hmm. and I just, I very much enjoy his perspective on things. Uh, I, I loved the conversation. So hopefully audience, you will as well. Yeah. Uh, so take a listen and uh, look forward to future episodes when he is back in the States. We're going to have him on to dig in a little bit deeper. Welcome, everyone. This is Mike and Tammy back for another round of Flyover Logic. Each episode will give you a brief take on what's got us thinking, what the heck? We'll take a deeper dive into one big topic, and we'll end with sharing something happy, leaving you all with some Minnesota nice. Sometimes you need a bird's eye view to make sense of the world, and sometimes you need to land the plane and take a look around. We hope to do both and help each other learn something along the way. We're speaking with uh, Chris. Oh my gosh! I just about—I know, but I almost called you Tucci because we re- we refer to you as Stanley. We Tucci. went over that last time. Yep. Yes. Or, or the last two times. Is, is that running out of steam? Or is no? That no. Still Odd, oddly enough, it's still okay. a thing here. Not yeah. with that portrait okay. you have up okay. on the Zoom thing. It's not helping at all. Uh, okay. Anyway, okay. Chris Hislop, um, friend of the show, also uh, the art. Now, what is your actual title at the Montana World Affairs Council? Well, I think more importantly, oh, uh, my title it possibly might be the first three-time guest on your podcast. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yeah, now that's what I would prefer to, okay. to yeah. be um, known as. But in the meantime, you can also uh, refer to me as the executive director of the Montana World Affairs Council. That's right. Um, and so we're speaking to you uh, today live from the ukraine well we're not in the ukraine you are in the ukraine um and I you, am. yes and you are there as part of your work with the montana world affairs council is that correct or are you doing a diff is this a different thing well not exactly i'm not here um with the with the council i'm here helping a small uh, humanitarian ngo set up a humanitarian program in the east of the country uh, so i'm calling from Kharkiv, um, which if you check the map, you'll see is kind of the major city in the far eastern portion of Ukraine. We're about 20 miles from the Russian border. Oh, wow. Wow. You're like yeah. in, in the teeth we're of close. it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're, we're not, I mean, it, it's we're not in the it's, teeth of it. I'll, I'll cover all that stuff, but we're actually um, 14 miles north of the front line uh, here in Kharkiv. Um, and 20 miles from the Russian border. So, uh, yeah, that, that, anyway, that's just to orient ourselves on the map. Wow. Okay. So what drew you and this organization, like, what is the mission here? 
Well, uh, a friend of mine who I used to work with in the UN now runs his own humanitarian organization called the Polish Center for International Aid, and that goes by its Polish acronym PCPM. Uh, and they've been doing humanitarian programs in Ukraine since 2014. Now, that was, of course, the date when um, the first Russian incursion into what they call the Donbass, um, the, the eastern uh, areas and the Crimea. Um, and uh, that, that kind of sparked a humanitarian crisis. And now, again, of course, starting a year and a half ago on this kind of full-fledged Russian invasion. So this organization's been doing programs for some time. They uh, got in touch with me to help them design a, a new program that they're doing. And basically, this program, um, what it's going to do is help about, I don't know, between 200 and 250 families whose houses were damaged by the conflict, um, going to help them put new roofs, new doors, new windows on so they can kind of get a get a place for winter. That's the goal. Um, on part one of the project, they're also supporting people who've been affected by war with some food, you know, small amounts of food and small amounts of what they call non-food, which is a big broad category of, you know, things like clothing, blankets, um, oftentimes, you know, cooking stuff, pots, pans, and, and that kind of thing. Um, sometimes soap and shampoos and, and, and like that. Um, so they are doing that here in the East Part of the country and then slightly to the south of where I am, as I mentioned, kind of nearer to the front line. Wow, that sounds, I mean, obviously that's excellent work. Um, why 200, 250 families? Is that like a number that they thought was reasonable? Or like, how do they, how do we, how'd you get start? How did they well, get land on that? Basically, what that boils down is a, this turns into math uh, because they've received <laughs> a donation. Yeah, it's it's strange, but it does. It they received a donation from the government of Taiwan, um, and that is meant to cover these three activities, if you will. You know, helping people rebuild their homes, delivering a bit of food, delivering a bit of non-food, uh, and uh, if you cut up the total amount that they received. Um, and then you average out uh, how much does it actually cost to fix a home that's been destroyed or not destroyed, damaged mm -hmm. to a certain degree. That number uh, ends up being about anywhere between $2,500 and $4,000 to fix a house. So their budget then can support about 200 or 250 houses at that level, right? So that they sure. just, that's basically math. <laughs> it sounds like basic math. It is. It is. It's, I mean, it, it makes it sound really simple, but of course, the, the devil's in the details and who actually gets chosen and and where and why and with whom. Uh, all of this is the really nitty gritty work of humanitarian organizations. Um, are you, is this your first time? I know that you're not, um, uh, you're not a stranger to the region. You have worked in this region before, but have you been in Ukraine before? Is this like a, like a homecoming for you or is it the first time? Now, this is the first time, but I will say, you know, to try to paint a little bit of a picture for the listeners is, is that um, I was a U.S. Peace Corps volunteer in Kyrgyzstan, which is in Central Asia. It's one of the stands, if you will, <laughs> of five stands in, in Central Asia. They were um, they were part of the Soviet Union. So they they were um, 
the Kyrgyzstan was one of the states within the Soviet Union. So I spent three years there. I spent some time in Chechnya during the Second Chechen War, and I, I've traveled a bit around Russia. Um, and so that's part one. So Ukraine is also of part of the former Soviet Union, but of course has been independent since 1991. So, uh, Part of this place for me is familiar because it was part of the Soviet Union, and it has uh, some aspects of that still, quite a few, at least on the surface. Mm. So some of the architecture, some of the way things work, some of the, the way um, people act here, um, a, a bit of the culture, um, you know, has some, you know, it, it resonates a bit with me, um, having been around the, the former Soviet Union. But on the other side, uh, Ukraine is... Um, very much European. I mean, um, if you've traveled anywhere around Europe and then you landed in Kiev, the capital of Ukraine, you would feel like you're in a European capital that has a little bit of this kind of post-Soviet hangover going on. Mm -hmm. um, so, so for me, I, although I've never been here, I guess this is all to say it just feels very familiar to me um, because a lot of the kind of former Soviet Union has some of these similarities. So what is the situation there? Like, how do you, I feel like um, it's very easy for us to pick up all different versions of what's actually mm -hmm. happening there, uh, you know, depending on which news source you want to look at. So what is actually happening in your area or around you? So, yeah, it's good, Tammy, that you mentioned the news because, of <laughs> course, we get a kind of very specific view from the news. And, and it, um, it depends, of course, a bit on your source. Um, but uh, what you're seeing, what we're seeing primarily in the Western news is um, a lot of it's, it's the fighting, it's the combat, it's the military aspect of this. So that is definitely happening. Look, let's face it. There is a um, pretty uh, significant interstate war happening 14 miles south of where I'm sitting. Um, it, you know, Russia invaded a year and a half ago uh, in a, in a full-scale invasion, and um, Ukraine and Russia have been uh, fighting hammer and tongs since uh, across a very long front line that runs kind of uh, you know, from the Russian border in the east, and then it kind of travels southwest down near um, the port city of Odessa. Uh, and the area that is behind that front line that's Russian-occupied is primarily that area that Russia um, annexed in 2014, including that kind of spit of land called the Crimea that sticks out into the Black Sea. So part one of the situation is a massive... Um, conventional war um, that is, you know, using all of this modern equipment, yet also you see these um, people who are fighting in trenches, and it harkens back to World War One. you know, mm -hmm. you, it's a, it's a quite an amazing sight, what we're seeing militarily. Um, you're, you, you're always hearing stuff on the news about the counteroffensive and new weapon systems and F-16s, and so I think for most listeners, you're probably getting a ton of that stuff. So let me give you the other picture mm -hmm. and what else is happening here, because it's fascinating, actually. Um, on one hand, and, and directly related, of course, to the, to the conflict, is this um, 
huge amount of human suffering. Mm. So you have, um, according to the United Nations, 17 million people who are in need of humanitarian aid. Now, that 17 million accounts basically for people who um, uh, have been affected by conflict and are living on or near the, the line of conflict. And there are plenty of civilians who are still living around that conflict area. Then there are millions of people who have fled that area. They sometimes, like here in Kharkiv, the front line used to be just literally a mile and a half from where I'm sitting. A lot of people who who moved away from the conflict just moved to the city. Mm. Some then moved further west to Kiev. Some moved further west to western Ukraine. Some then uh, also went to European countries. Poland has, re- you know, received two, over two million Ukrainian refugees. Yeah. Some spread out across Western Europe. Some came to the United States and other countries. So you have se- that seventeen million people in need accounts for the, the total number of people um, who've been affected by conflict. So it is a extraordinary number of you know seventeen million is, is a you know what Minnesota uh, the total population is that about five million people yep. mm-hmm. five point four. <laughs> Or something wow. like this. Okay, so you know, over three times the entire population of our state um, is in need and affected by war. So um, then there's the, the other, you know, picture to paint here that we we don't get is, you know, sometimes those numbers are so big that they don't they don't really seem like much, and and um, it is probably really not a, a great thing in this podcast to quote Joseph Stalin. <laughs> I, that's exactly um, where my mind went. So go ahead. Yeah. You knew, I, I knew you were going to, you were probably going to beat me to the punch, Mike, on the Stalin quote, but um, Stalin famously said, um, uh, one death is a tragedy. A million is a statistic. Mm-hmm. And, and so it, it does, um, you know, as sick and, and, and twisted as that sounds, it gives some insight into human psyche in that really when we hear about 17 million people who are in need, it seems like too big to comprehend and it, it, it doesn't seem human anymore. It does seem just like a number. But, you know, other numbers, uh, and just to give you some, again, the paint the picture here is, um, you know, there are two uniformed uh, militaries fighting here, but civilians get caught in that. And, and uh, you've seen that... Um, there have been missiles and drones and and um, other kind of ordnance strikes in civilian areas here in Ukraine, and drone strikes in in Russia, um, and uh, so over the period of the war, over ten thousand civilians have died. Of those, about five hundred were children. Mm. Um, so that's another thing to keep in mind. Now, it just just to to keep going through the the, the painting on this is, let's also. Um, Keep in mind one other really kind of um, macabre statistic here is um, over 700,000 Ukrainian children have been taken from Ukraine into Russia. Um, and the, the, the Russians have said that this is, you know, to, for, for their own safety. Um, but this is a, actually a war crime. And it is, um, you, you know, that uh, Vladimir, President Putin and, and his minister uh, responsible for this movement of children have been indicted by the International Criminal Court for this particular crime. Mm. Um, and, and so th- that's another thing that's happening. So that's a kind of, I want to give a picture of the human element of this this conflict because it it's not just um, F sixteen and high Mars and these buzzwords that we hear. It's human beings that are are, are being affected by this. 
Um, however, let me just, the, the last thing that I want to paint here is, is for me, it's always been very interesting because you two know, and maybe the listeners know that I've spent a lot of my life in conflict areas, both, both near the conflict and away from the conflict. Um, but it's interesting here, um, like it has been in other places is I'm, I'm again, I'm 14 miles from the front line, but except for the air raid sirens and, and the people in uniform that you see here on the streets, it is remarkably normal. Um, Interesting. The, it, it really is. And that's, I will say, not uncommon. It doesn't mean everything is okay here and everybody's, you know, everybody feels the situation is normal. It's far from it. But just on the surface, like for instance, just to say, uh, an hour ago, I walked into a grocery store and this grocery store um, is if if I dropped you in the middle of it uh, right now, you would not be able to distinguish that place from any grocery store that you've ever been in in the United States. I mean, the really nice ones, mm-hmm. right? The, the 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 big new nice ones, except of course that everything's written in Ukrainian. Right? <laughs> um, but all the stuff, you know, fresh fruit, fr- you know, everything, it looks exactly like service food. I mean, it's just. It's so there is this um, odd um, kind of strand of normalcy as well that is happening here. I mean, last thing I'll say is this weekend um, here in Kharkiv, it was like 98 degrees. I mean, it was so flipping hot. So uh, myself and a couple of my friends, we went to the local lake. It's like going to Pebble Lake. Uh, except um, there, there was like thousands of Ukrainians swimming to cool off, you know, and if you just took a look at it Sunday afternoon, 98 degrees, sunny, everybody's kind of, you know, swimming and playing, but here's the rub is that just over the hill, like there's a forest right, right along the, along the shore. And then it's kind of a hill and you can, you can tell it kind of over the crest of the hill, there is a, uh, you know, live weapons training going on. <laughs> wow. and, and so you hear the rat-a-tat-tat of, of you know, automatic weapons um, because there's an army bunch there training. So there you go. I mean, it's just a, it's a, it's a really uh, interesting, strange, you know, place of a lot of uh, contradictions. Wow. So um, a couple of questions that came to mind as you were describing all of that. Um, first, as far as the news goes, is there a source that you could recommend for us to get more of that humanitarian piece? Is there a good? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's a great question, Tammy. I mean, the, really, the premier international source that always has good humanitarian stuff is the British newspaper, The Guardian. Okay. Um, and luckily you can still read that free online. Um, even their articles, like you don't have to get a subscription or pay for it. So they have really great stuff about the humanitarian situation. You will occasionally get a good piece on the New York times. Um, but you got to pay for that. Um, (laughs) so, um, um, but I, let me just say, since you asked, you know, I just want to encourage anybody who's listening to this to read from different sources mm-hmm. because um, the narratives that are um, emanating from this place are um, inevitably moving into the American presidential election cycle. Mm-hmm. And um, it is so important that readers, you know, come to some 
uh, you know, come to your own terms on this. I, the reason I'm saying this is the obvious. This is going to be a major issue in the presidential election. Mm. You know, what is America doing in Ukraine? Why are we doing it? Should we continue? You know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I have my opinions. You have yours. Um, but I hope the listeners, you know, form your own opinion that that is informed, please. I love that so much. I could not, I could not love that more. That is my favorite. <laughs> Check some sources, use more than one source, get an informed there opinion. Yes. I love that a lot. Um, so totally different note, but um, you mentioned like going into the grocery store and shelves are still full, that kind of thing. I think one big piece that we keep hearing about this crisis here anyway, and I, I would probably think that there's some political, uh, you know, anyway, sentiment attached to it is uh, about how this is going to affect our food and our, you know, products being available because Ukraine produces all of this wheat or whatever. Um, so are you, you're not seeing that there or is that like political spin or is that having as much effect as we're actually hearing? Uh, well, I think the effect that you're talking about, Tammy, and the one that's in the news is a kind of a global commodity price, right? So when you look at the global price of things that um, Ukraine exports, um, wheat, sunflower, um, rapeseed oil, and so on, um, that the fact that um, there's a disruption in the flow of that export is causing these increases in prices across um, across global commodity prices. So, does that affect the cost of a Snickers at the convenience store? <laughs> Ouch! You know, Ouch. Not, I know, Mike. I, I'm going straight to the heart because I know you're probably thinking about one right now. But I, I, I just, you know, there not, not heavily. But what you are seeing is. Um, for example, uh, the next person you ought to have on your show is a grain farmer uh, because their uh, perspective would be really interesting. So for uh, a Minnesota uh, or an American grain farmer um, watching the price of global commodity. Um, this is you a know, boon. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a big increase. Now, um, at the same time, well, it, this is actually leveled off. I was going to mention the thing about fuel, but you know, last year there was mm -hmm. a spike in fuel prices, but that that's largely leveled off, and so um, uh, farmers are not experiencing quite the same you know concern as a year ago. Um, but nevertheless, yeah, that global commodity pricing. So it, now, am I seeing it here? I don't know because I've only been here for a couple yeah. weeks, and I'm not sure. frankly watching the prices. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know if it's been affected, but but it is right now, of course, affecting. Um, global food price and the other bit that the um that is in the news of course is uh when you look at the kind of global commodity market to um, the southern hemisphere mm. and the global south um now that's also you know significant because um in in you know basic economics here is if something gets uh, rare then the price is going to go up right uh, and so those who are depending on low priced um agriculture commodity that comes out of ukraine uh, they're not going to get it at that same price because it's not flowing it's going to be higher price and it's going to get out of reach and so there's a lot of concern and it's well grounded that the you know 
uh, you know, call, I don't know. I don't even know what to call it. It's not really an embargo. It's not really, uh, you know, the, the, the Russian ships aren't really stopping the grain, but they're bombarding the ports. Um, whatever that is, um, is definitely having effect on global commodity prices, really hitting the whole world. But the um, the initial and more immediate effect is going to be uh, primarily in the importers in the global south. All right. Um, so where you are located, um, obviously, again, as we are getting information from news sources and whatnot, we see the talks about the counteroffensive or the military part of it. And we see a lot of uh, Vladimir Zelensky being, you know, a real good mm-hmm. cheerleader and, and putting on a brave face and things like that. But like for the yeah. for someone who is who is obviously you're working with people who have been physically and economically affected by the war, but are not like really in the teeth of it, if you will, anymore. Like what's what's the, like, what is their, I don't know, vibe seems like a really crass way to put it, but like, (laughs) what's the temperature of like the people in the area that you are working with? Yeah. Look, this is a country and a society uh, entirely mobilized for this war. Um, It you know, I, I have been asking that question around to um, expatriates who work here, Ukrainians who are working here, and trying to get a, a sense uh, of that, a better sense. Um, at no time has anybody ever said that anyone has any um, sympathies towards Russia. Mm. Um, quite the opposite, of course, that um, any, any kind of... Uh, I don't know if affiliation is the right word, but any kind of sense of connection um, amongst, you know, almost all um, layers of Ukraine society, it's just over. It's just, um, you know, whatever may have been, it is no longer. Um, uh, And that is, of course, you know, that that's a big thing because one has to ask if that's happened across an entire society um, and we can get into this next question of, you know, what, what's looming? Like what are the possible options for this conflict? Mm. If one option is uh, a Russian military victory, what does that mean? I mean, how, how would you possibly, what would you do in a country that completely rejects, you know, you entirely i i don't know anyway this is a long way of saying this is a this is a a country that is entirely mobilized and seized behind one thing and that's this war you do see it um like i said you know there's this weird sense of normalcy but nevertheless um the um you see a lot of advertisement um, on the evening news you see men and women in uniform so you see the military a lot um, it's talked about, it's discussed, it's the number one news all the time here. Um, and, and so the, 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 you know, the vibe or the sense here uh, amongst Ukrainians is an entire push for victory, if you will, or victory and peace um, un- unequivocally. Now, all of that said, there's just one, uh, one thing to add, which is <laughs> only one. Uh, I said, yeah, there, there really is honestly. And, and that is, um, None of us really know the opinion uh, of those people who are, uh, I said I'm 14 miles north of the line, let's say 20 miles south of me. Sure. Um, those people, uh, I mean, we. I get different accounts uh, and I don't know what to believe. So I, I don't have an opinion and I can't really say. 
Um, I'm glad that you mentioned that, that because I, that's what I was going to ask. Um, we hear about this region that's right on the border <laughs> that is still strongly, supposedly, right, strongly supporting Russia and wants to be a part of Russia. Um, but so I was going to ask you that. So thanks for mentioning that. Yeah, I, and, and I'll just I'll say that I, I don't know. Um, you know that there was uh, look, we, we sometimes we have to be honest and be, maybe it's impolitic, but a completely sham referendum that the Russians <laughs> undertook in the areas that they occupied. Mm -hmm. and, and so get you know, so here's the dynamic. You got to kind of like wrap your head around this one, which is so. You know, they came in 2014 and they, and then there was an, a, another kind of invasion a year and a half ago, and they ran a referendum in areas that they controlled. Um, and the result of that referendum uh, showed that there was <laughs> that they wanted to be part of Russia. OK, like ninety nine point so, nine with, yes, with no yes, bias yes, in that yeah, research, no, no bias. Good, it, in good North Korean fashion, um, you know, they, they, so, so it was a complete sham, of course, but what, what that has done is now um, the, the Russian Federation claims that as their land. Mm -hmm. So now, now you have this question. Well, I, I, I don't question it. Ukrainians don't question it. Most of the world don't question sovereignty. Right. What is what is the sovereign area of Ukraine? What is the sovereign area of Russia? Russia claims sovereignty over these uh, Luhansk, uh, Donetsk and Crimea, um, as does Ukraine. So what is going on there? Like who's right? Who's wrong? Russia holds that land. Uh, Ukraine claims that land. So, you know, most of the world agrees with Ukraine's claim um, uh, very few save, uh, you know, Iran, North Korea, and, and I don't know who else, um, would agree with the Russian narrative here that, you know, that, so, um, what you have then back to this kind of question on public opinion is uh, a group of people there who we, you know, it, it's kind of hard to say, uh, I can't say, I don't know. But the other thing too, just the, the part B of that is also, Russian, the Russian society's public opinion. We're not getting that in the Western news. It's not coming out in Russian news. Mm. You know, people, people here that I speak with claim that Russians support the war, but frankly, I, I don't know on what basis people are making that claim because I don't read nor see anything uh, that I, I would consider legitimate on, on a, a sense of Russian public opinion on this war. So big question mark. Yeah. Uh, you need uh, to have somebody on your podcast from Russia. Uh, that would be, See, and, well, and sort that one out. <laughs> even if, even if we, if they a, were allowed that's to, a, I was going to say, that's a great <laughs> yes, idea. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, even so, um, even, uh, I mean, there's, there is a media issue there too, because the Russian people, are not getting all, all of the information. I know initially there was some interesting like yeah. TikToks that kind of got snuck out, you know, like, and didn't last very long where you'd be able to see some of those accounts um, of people who claimed yeah. to be in Russia. Anyway, I, the whole thing is obviously horrible and tragic. Mm -hmm. And so I don't, I don't mm -hmm. like to make like, uh, not light, but like, Po try to make positive spins but yeah, yeah. ironically it does seem from my perspective from the things that i have read it kind of going to what you're talking about about everyone in ukraine that y you've interacted with being completely mobilized you know total solidarity is that this whole action has 
like accelerated the Ukrainification of Ukraine in some ways because there there were and are deep ties, you know, to Russia. It used to be part of Russia, uh, you know. There, but like, it seems like it's the, having the exact opposite effect that Putin would have wanted. Um, yeah, by sort of clarifying things for people, and they really are on a on a on a cultural march too to to pur not purge. I don't want to use that. Oh, that's a bad word. But to yeah, yeah, you don't want to use that one to become more Ukrainian and less Russian. Yeah. Whether it's from you know taking down statues or changing you know uh, the language that they're using or whatever it is. Um, I was recently, there was a very interesting NPR story um, where they were talking about, you were, you had mentioned in 2014 when they had, in Russia had invaded and taken over Crimea. And so like you had, there was people telling stories where they couldn't, even though they were allowed to, they would not go visit their family who lived in Crimea because they wouldn't be able to go back to their towns and say like, oh yeah, I spent my summer vacation in Crimea because yeah. then that was like some sort of, you know, validation of what Russia had done. And, and to remember that, like, there are families that have been torn right. apart. And anyway. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, you know, that the, the, um, I don't know if you call them unintended consequences or like the perverse consequence or, or not of, of all of this, at least from, from the Russian standpoint, of course, you know, what we, what we understand or what you piece together was, a kind of hope for a rapid military victory that led to the in installation of a, a Russia-friendly government and that kind of Ukraine would, would swing away from Europe and NATO back into a kind of Russian sphere. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that clearly has not happened. No rapid victory. Um, now a, a country completely welded together um, against Russia – uh, and that kind of stuff doesn't go away. You know, I mean, that that's not a sentiment that's just, you know, temporary. Um, what what has happened here has, has you're right, it's it's kind of uh, brought the Ukrainian people together. Um, and, and also there are interesting um, or are slash were, you know, some divisions within Ukrainian society, East versus West and, and this kind of thing, you know, um, that that are now set aside as the country kind of unites in, in, in one, you know, one direction. That's inside Ukraine. And then, of course, the other bits that, that you do get from the Western news is the, the other perverse outcomes of, you know, um, a Europe more united than ever, um, and a NATO more united than ever and larger, thanks to Finland and Sweden, um, an America that has, um, you know, I, I do, I have to hand it to America on this one, um, uh, really a, quite a kind of a, um, exceptional textbook diplomacy in getting allies together, keeping them together towards, you know, one united goal, kind of keeping the team together, um, all of those things, I think, were um, were the opposite of what this uh, special military operation was meant to achieve. Totally, I would. But, I, but I would push back a little bit. Yet. I'll just say, I'll just say, sorry to interrupt, Mike, but you know, no. um, I, I also don't want to say any of this um, in any way being smug or, or, or what have you, because uh, you know, the war is raging not far from here, and there is no end in sight. 
Um, and so it, 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 it's too early to, to, to declare any kind of victory, but the, those dynamics, you know, you can't miss. Um, yeah. Any, anytime we're talking about a situation like this, uh, any of the positive outcomes that we could point to are not worth it. Like it yeah. is not, yeah, it is not right. worth 700,000 children being moved to Russia and 17 million people being displaced <laughs> and 10,000 civilians dying in a war. <laughs> That's, yeah, it's not right. worth it, but it is, you know, anyway. Um, yeah, go ahead. So I just, you've, you've mentioned it just a couple of times, um, but I just want to ask the question, how does this end? You said there are a few <laughs> options. I want to hear them. <laughs> well, like, how do we get yeah, out of this? Cause right now it just seems like it's going to not end. Right. Like, can I edit, yeah. can I edit your question yes, a little bit? Do like, it. I don't um, care. Because, yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> He said, we're going to talk about how it ends. I want to know. Right. Uh, what I think maybe it would be interesting is, again, like the the people you are interacting with and the area you're in, like when, when I asked what the vibe was, you said that, you know, they're all united or whatever. Um, but how do they act, see it ending versus like we can have talking heads go, well, we can, you know, here are four different peace plans. Oh, yeah. But what are the Ukrainians that you interact with? Like, what is their acceptable ending? Uh, as far as I know from the Ukrainians I spoke with, there is only one acceptable ending and that, I mean, it, yeah, dumb no, question, really, Mike. I mean, no, no, it's a, it's a fair question because everybody should know that kind of Ukrainian public opinion is of absolutely one view. And those points you can kind of see, um, you, you may have heard about this, you know, the meeting in Saudi Arabia, um, and president Zelensky has, uh, quite some time ago, put forward a, uh, 10 point peace plan. And in there, uh, I think importantly and kind of striking right to the point is the return, uh, you know, of all lands, the removal of all foreign troops, um, and, uh, a Ukraine that goes back to its previous borders recognized in 1991, you know, so that's the, that's the Ukrainian opinion, um, uh, not just by and large, but to, to a person, I would say. Um, now on to the talking heads. Well, this stuff, there's <laughs> Thank no, you. There's yeah. nothing new. There, there's nothing new about that. That you know, they say this about every conflict. You know, uh, it's uh, you know, option A, side A wins. Option yeah. B, there's a stalemate. <laughs> yep. Option C, side B wins. Right. Um, so so that's not interesting. But but what might be slightly more interesting than than that kind of really bland thing is that, look, um, a, a Ukraine victory. That's let's say part one, you know, a, a, a result that the Ukraine um, society wants that um, the most of the world um, would I would hazard to say is behind that. That means uh, a victory on the battlefield. That means a victory in diplomacy, negotiation, and peacemaking. You know, it's not just um, going to be a military victory. There's much more to it than that. Um, but keep in mind that a, a Ukrainian victory like that, as as described in that way, um, you know, meeting the 10 points of President Zelensky's plan means, obviously, a Russian loss, right? Mm -hmm. Russia loses, uh, what happens with Russia if they lose? What kind of internal strife? Um, what kind of uh, what what is going to happen inside Russia um, in in a you know a catastrophic failure um, for their leadership and for their country? Um, who knows? But you know it, it's important to point out that um, you know on, on on one side there's a victory, on the other side there's a loss, and there are things dynamics that are unleashed in a loss. 
right? So then you look at you look at um, part B, you know, or option two, stalemate. You know, that's always the one. Um, that what does that look like? You know, that looks like what a lot of people kind of keep falling back to, and it's a, it's a it's a common thing that's repeated itself in many parts of the world. It's a kind of multilateral peace agreement um, that freezes the conflict. There's a multilateral like peacekeeping or observer mission that's deployed by the UN or the um, Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. Things are frozen. Um, there might be kind of low-scale conflict, um, and, and that may be a part of the uh, agreed um, kind of uh, peace negotiation is that at some point in the future, there is a referendum whereby those people who are living in the territories that were occupied by Russia decide for themselves with whom do they want to live. That's that's what that was the solution in South Sudan, by the way. So in 2011, South Sudan went their own way in a referendum after a long peacekeeping mission and so on. So that that's a kind of stalemate thing. And then there's the there's the kind of Russia and I'm going to say quote unquote wins because um, many people have an idea of of winning here as being um, you know a, a, a total vi- a total victory or something like this. But actually, you know, uh, I, I think the Russians might define winning differently um, <laughs> than what what we what we think, right? Because right now it would seem that a Russian victory would be simply staying put, right? <laughs> they don't really need to take over the entire country. Uh, I don't know, maybe they still want to, but but they don't need to. They need to just hold the ground that they've been holding since 2014, right? And then in that scenario, uh, kind of what happens and, and what you see all around the world over and over is um, the short attention span of the world, you know? Mm-hmm. That, that happens and pretty soon we kind of start forgetting. Like, hey, you know, I don't know when was the last time you guys did a show on Darfur or when was the last time you heard anything about Myanmar, you know, these places or how about Sri Lanka, you know, these places, they just, they, they fall off the radar. Uh, and so the, uh, a Russia uh, quote unquote win is simply holding ground, sitting put and waiting until the world's attention goes somewhere else. Hmm. Now, what is that? What is the outcome of that? You know, what, what, what happens? Because this really speaks to, to the big question for Americans, like why, you know, why are we helping Ukraine? What, what does this mean? But, you know, look, that, that third scenario um, is a scenario where the world watches and sees that, hey, you know, um, actually, if we do a land grab, um, chances are we're going to be able to keep that land grab, you know, it sends a really strong message and it does. And that's not make, I'm not making that up, but it, it, it's just a, it's, it's a truism. And so the, the dynamic unleashed by that third option is not just Russia holds onto that land. A, a kind of dynamic is unleashed. And of course, you know, you've got um, everybody will raise the China-Taiwan tension and that China sees, oh, well, you know, a land grab seemed to go all right for Putin. Why don't we give it a try with Taiwan? Um, you know, and, and nobody would want that, um, you know, least of all the Taiwanese. So so it does then speak to this really important question about um, 
you know, what what does America want? What is an American interest on an outcome in Ukraine? That's a good question. I was just about to say, all right, it's time to make it about us now. Uh, <laughs> uh, and and in, in, in that vein, um, how yeah. does, uh, from your experience, how do, how does, how do, how do the Ukrainians uh, view the United States uh, and and how we have interacted both sort of like on an official level and then also maybe even on like a, a citizen to citizen level, if you will. Um, because, I mean, you could make an argument that this is partly our fault uh, because we didn't. I mean, in two, that was it 2008, Russia invaded Georgia. Um, yeah. It was at Bush, I think, was maybe president at the time. We didn't do anything about that. Then Russia invaded Ukraine and we, I mean, we made, we didn't do, obviously we said that was not cool. You shouldn't do that. But I mean, we did not step up and help them. So we have laid policy wise, the groundwork for Russia to think that they were going to be able to do this again. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I could very much see Ukrainians sort of being a little miffed, if you will, or at least pissed at us for, uh, okay, now you're helping or, you know, so anyway, what, how, how, how are we, how are, how's our image coming out on this end? You know, that's really what I want to know. Well, I I mean, there's a lot there, Mike. So we're going to, we're going to just, we're going to pick that one apart here and and see where it all kind of, we'll we'll shake it up and see what falls out. But um, first of all, as far as I can tell, and I'm, you know, by no means an interest and, and, and expert on this is that, Ukraine public opinion on America is very positive because, look, uh, the United States is is leading the world in um, you know financial and material support to Ukraine at their darkest hour, really. Then now that's that's the this is the Council on Foreign Relations just issued a paper and and breaking down um, U.S. support to Ukraine and that has amounted to seventy six billion dollars. So of that, forty-six billion is military, and that's you know that is uh, material, the value of the material. Twenty-six billion is direct budgetary support. So that's money pumped directly into the government of Ukraine to maintain public services. Right. And then four billion of that has been humanitarian aid, making the United States the the largest provider of aid in Ukraine. So all of that uh, is to say. You know the uh, the public opinion is positive. Of course, that can change, um, mm-hmm. but but for now it, it's quite positive. But Mike, I, you, you you the other thing that is um, floating around the uh, American discussion about Ukraine, and it has been you know since before this m- most recent invasion, is 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 America to blame, or or do we do we possess some fault here? And there's been a a really interesting um, debate um, by um, many people, highly respected people within the U.S. foreign policy establishment, talking about this, and and saying, you know, to paraphrase, yes, um, because um, NATO has been pushing to expand and is kind of um, frightening Russia at its frontier, um, we somehow uh, carry some of the blame. Now, I want to. I, I just have to give my 
my personal opinion here. And of course, I'm going to do that with a little story. Right? <laughs> so <laughs> I'm not just going to come right out and say it. I got to tell you this story because it is apropos, as they would say, of, of this issue. That's I so know European you got to drop that one sometime. You got to drop that one. So check this out. In um, 1993, I was teaching high school at Rotsay, Minnesota, home of the world's largest prairie chicken. Wow. And we had a, a Russian foreign exchange student. And this is just two years after the fall of the Soviet Union, right? So um, this young kid came and he, he hardly spoke a word of English. But to his credit, he studied like crazy and he, you know, he got, he, he was getting a handle on the language to the point we could have some discussions. And at, I don't know how it came up, but, you know, a maybe usual question. I asked him, Igor, who built the Berlin Wall? <laughs> you know, like I was really going to put it into his face. You know, it was the Soviets. You, know, you guys did this. And he looked at me in all seriousness and he said, Chris, we both built the Berlin Wall. Oh, And I, and I was like, yeah, I was like, oh, that is heavy. You know, I was like, wow, because my mind was like, oh, yeah, okay, I can see how <clears throat> he might say that because we were also responsible for the Cold War and all of this, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we yeah, okay, I see. We, we kind of built that. Now, you know, fast forward to 30 years later, and I'm hearing people say America is partially responsible for Russian aggression in Ukraine. And it's only now I think back on Igor and I say that is total crap. <laughs> Both, both what Igor said and what these people are saying, I'm sorry, but it has to be called out in, 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 in really clear terms. I don't want to be flip about this. This is, this is real. To say that America is somehow responsible for a decision um, for an aggressive invasion of a country, I, I think is, is just incredulous. And, 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 it, and it just it is so far from reality. Um, but because so many respected voices have, have raised this, you know, you, you have to you, you have to discuss it and debate it. And that's healthy. Um, my discussion and debate is simply um, no one um, forces anyone to invade another country. A decision is made and they go ahead. Um, and I think the result of this is telling um, insofar as what the original intent was. Right. The original intent was, was many. It's changed over time. But nevertheless, um, this denazification and securing of their borders was a complete farce, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and and that um, and that I just reject um, unequivocally this kind of like you know the U.S. had anything to do with this. I, I get the it's a really you know it's a lovely academic it's a it's a it's a uh, kind of nice little uh, uh, package with a nice little bow tie on top in, in academic and theoretical terms. It all kind of hangs together until you come here and you see this place and you see these people and you see the effect of this war. Then you got to say, yeah, you know what? I don't really think so. <laughs> so, so I want to say that because I also think it's important for listeners and Americans to think about this. Yeah. And, and I, people don't have to believe me, but I'd be happy if they listen to me and started looking into it themselves mm. to see th their own selves because um, already, um, and I'm like I, 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 you know, listener. Here's a little. Here's a little thing. I already, uh, I already asked Mike about um, a what the heck if you guys were still doing it. So I've teed one up. Um, if you guys are still doing what the heck, you are right, Mike. Oh yeah, oh yeah. yeah. 
Okay. Okay. So, so I'm going to save a little bit of, I'm going to keep some of my powder dry on this, uh, on this thing, but, um, but this, um, you know, issue of Ukraine is going to be central uh, in the foreign policy part of the American debate, mm-hmm. uh, the presidential debate. And already narratives are being created and formed and being spoon fed to a, a public um, who, um, if you're not careful, are going to eat this stuff up and believe things that aren't true, um, just pat- patently untrue. And so now is the time to kind of you know, dig into this and find out really, you know, where is the money going? What is happening? Why are we doing it? And and so on and so forth. So there you go. I mean, that's the setup um, so far. Now, you now I, I hope somebody asked me, so Chris, what do you think? What is the American interest here? Oh, what is the American oh, interest man, here, I Chris? Wanted to, <laughs> I wanted to defend myself first. He just obliterated me. No, no. I, I appreciate Mike, that. I know you didn't mean it. Sorry, I no, should no, have no. said. No, Mike, you're good. I know you didn't mean your point. No, I, 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 I will say. I know you didn't mean it in that fashion, and I didn't. I didn't. Uh, my point was not to obliterate you, yeah. but it was just to say that it is part of this narrative, right? Yeah. So you know, a, a, but Americans are rightly. It's a healthy debate. Thank God we've got a functioning democracy in that way that we can ask ourselves and our government, why are you doing this? You know, what is the what exactly is the kind of um, what what is the national interest in um, in American support? Now you know I've laid out the the numbers um, um, for everybody. So so you know we all know that we're kind of in it at least you know from a, from a financial perspective. But look, you know there's a few things that Americans they know or or it, you know it should be repeated that this is not just about Ukraine. This has far-reaching implications for the world for for the entire international order and stability and security this order and and this international security was crafted mostly after world war ii and mostly by the united states Mm -hmm. so the the functioning of the world and the the order that we we all are benefiting from massively through our our global um, connections um, was crafted by the united states um, and it benefits our society more than any other society. Um, we reap benefits of this order beyond all compare to, to, to anywhere else in the world. So, you know, first of all, let's keep that in mind, that it's not just a war in a far off place. But what, what is being tested here is, in fact, that international order and the Russian Federation saying we think that we can rattle this international order, which stipulates you cannot you know, invade a sovereign country and take it over. That's part of international order. They say, you know, we, you know, we're going to shake that up a little bit. Now, do we want that to happen? If we say, yeah, we don't really care. Okay, if you don't care, get ready because there's six or seven other places in the world that can go pear-shaped the next day. Mm-hmm. So this matters to us because stability and security around the world facilitate our world, who we are and what we do. Um, so you know that's that's kind of first and foremost another thing because i'm a i come from a humanitarian background you know one thing i can be really proud of um is you know american american values um uh really you know they 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 resonate deeply with humanitarian principles in that you know when when civilians are suffering they ought to be helped 
You know, this is what, you know, ask any American, I'd be surprised if you asked any American, like, you know, if somebody's suffering, should you just blow them off? Mm-hmm. You know, most Americans are just not going to agree with that. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad that, that we agree that people who need help ought to get help. That's central to the humanitarian ethic and the humanitarian principles. And, you know, providing this kind of support to alleviate suffering, you know, it aligns with our values. You know, we have values of compassion and solidarity. And, and by helping people, our principles are put into action. They're not just our words. You know, Americans love to say, you got to walk the walk. You know, you can't just talk the talk, man. You got to walk the walk. And here in Ukraine, if you want, if you believe in this stuff, you got to walk the walk. And so these people who, who are, you know, um, suffering under this conflict, we ought to help them to walk our walk. Um, you know, um, th- th- so... The other thing that that's happening here, it, it, at at the I, I maybe should have started at the biggest thing and come to the smallest thing because I, I think this is kind of on the scale of the the big issues. This is the biggest one. Um, you know, I think people have rightly kind of um, oriented this conflict as a real, um, a, you know, whether a kind of democracy as we know it and self determination. Um, and free trade and and the things that we find to be central to our values in our country is this the way the world should operate or not um and and i do believe you know sometimes i don't believe it always when people um um conflate um a, a small issue into a huge one uh i'm always very skeptical when somebody says you know this one little issue if we don't get it right, mm-hmm. will um, absolutely destroy our society. I, I don't buy that argument uh, oftentimes, but when I look at the super big picture on Ukraine, I do tend to agree with the argument that says, you know, what is really at stake here is the 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 territorial integrity and sovereignty of this country. But but those things are basic principles of human rights, democracy, and self determination, right? That 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 is that is at the core of these values that that we that we cherish, um, that that we want to you know enhance for ourselves and you know to 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 promote around the world. So that, you know that's all that tends to be you know the, the the big picture stuff that I don't know if many Americans are getting because um, it tends to it tends to fall back on on. Uh, you know, how much is gas? What's the price <laughs> yeah. of gas? Um, but, but then I, I shoot, I got to keep my powder dry. I was going to give yep. you another <laughs> example of, of this, but, uh, um, but <laughs> so speak, is it time for what well, the hell? I was yeah, going to say, so, so speaking of that, you are going to, you are in a week's time or so, you're going to be returning to the United States, correct? I am. And I am. I'll be in. I'll be at Swan Lake. You can come out on the porch, Mike. I'm still waiting for you to come out there. Well, we would love to have you in again when you are around. So we're going to try to set that Let's up. Let's do because it. Yeah. I, I, one of the things I really want to dig into with you because I think it'd be fascinating is what you mentioned way at the beginning is how uh, this whole conflict is going to play out and affect our upcoming elections in the next one to three years in the United yeah. States. And I think that that's an onion I would like to continue peeling. Yes. Uh, yeah, let's but do for it. now let's we should it. probably wrap try up. to wrap up a little <laughs> bit. So yet, yeah, do you, would you like to start out? I mean, you've been trying to say you're what the heck for an hour now. So <laughs> no, uh, I, I feel like I, we should I let you go to, I want to, 
I wanted to, you know, hold it back a yeah. little bit, but now it seems, it just seems It's going like to make right our time. what the heck okay. seem really stupid. So go right no ahead. No way. I love your what the heck. I think it's just, <laughs> it's, it's brilliant. Okay. So, I mean, look, what the heck? Uh, Republican contender um, Vivek Ramaswamy said the oh, wow. other day. Nice he, job with he, the name. He, he suggested that, he, or he implied that somehow Hunter Biden's laptop has to do with America being to blame for the war in Ukraine. <laughs> what the heck? Now, wow. okay, so that's that's so far out in left field. It's just it's it might be a pop fly over the you know out foul ball of what the heck field, but but th- it's so crazy. But the reason I wanted to bring it up was just <laughs> to, to to finish this last point I was making, and that was so. so I can't. I think it was NBC asked uh, about the situation in Ukraine, and. Uh, 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 Vivek did this kind of uh, smoke and mirror thing where instead of answering the question, he jumped to Hunter Biden. And and so, look, I just want to call it out to say um, the issue on Ukraine is the massive suffering and threat to democracy that the situation is posing it is not Hunter Biden's <laughs> laptop. Okay. So America, please, it, I'm not saying, you know, uh, don't believe the Hunter Biden or don't follow it or whatever. Look, that's another issue. It may be important to you. Very good. That's fine. Super duper. Go with that. But when you are asking your politicians for whom you're voting, if you care about the situation in Ukraine, please don't allow them to answer <laughs> by saying Hunter, Hunter Biden's, Biden's laptop, laptop is to blame. Please, yeah. what the heck? There wow. you go. Uh, what the heck is right? The thing about those uh, those statements, well, I mean, there's many things about them, but I, I always wanted to say, like, okay, I'll give you that. Like, I'll just give you the win. Yep, the war in Ukraine is because of Hunter Biden's laptop. Great. I'll agree. <laughs> now, what are we going to do about the people who are suffering? And all? you know, like it does, it does not absolve us from uh, having to interact with this situation to just point the blame at somebody else. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. That, well, there'll be plenty of what the heck's uh, going forward on that one. I'm pretty sure. Mm-hmm. What do you wow. got? Wow. What do you got? Well, I just saw that my what the heck one one of the ones on my list is also yours. Oh, so I feel it? like we should just go right there. Uh, all right. Well, I'll I'll just do. So yeah. that's mine. Yeah. Which is my what the heck is apparently the Elon Musk versus Mark Zuckerberg cage fight is back on. Yeah. Again. So we talked about that before. Um, is this getting heck? a lot of traction yeah. in Ukraine? <laughs> Are you guys talking about that? Oh, it's all the rage. It's on the TV. It's in the newspapers. Can't get enough of it. Um, the problem with this, what the heck for me, is that I am probably 50-50 split, sort of disgusted with our society that this is a thing that we're mm-hmm, spending time mm-hmm. um, talking about and tweeting yeah. about and yeah. whatever it is, but also kind of here for the smack talk going back and <laughs> forth between Mr. Zuckerberg, for, between Zuck and uh, Musk. Musk. And oh. it's kind of, I have to admit, it's kind of entertaining, but also what the, what the heck, what the this heck? is where I am at right now. So I did. Do, Mike, I, do you feel bad about yourself? For, for uh, yeah, I do. I feel a little like, dirty. Like some, I, yeah, okay. <laughs> you should, checking. you should. After no. I, after I go down the tweet rabbit hole there, I, uh, I need to take a shower. So, yeah. You know. Yeah. You okay. should. Okay. So I did, I did appreciate 
just one little piece of this that like funds raised from this are going to go to causes that support veterans. Sure. So, I mean, I'm sure that they're making their own cash off of this, these two guys, but they are going to give some money away. So I guess that's okay. Like that part. But what I thought was really interesting too, in the most recent story is that Mark Zuckerberg has actually had training. Yeah. Like, he knows he knows what he's doing, and it said Elon Musk is lifting weights. He's going. Elon is going to die. <laughs> like, what are you doing? Oh anyway, so oh what the heck? That this is the level that we've reached. This is the Kardashians in a different realm, right? Like this is gross. America. Oof. Yeah. All right. I don't even follow the Kardashians. I'm no, not that gross. Same. Right. Same. What? So what was yours? Well, I, that was on my list. Oh, I yeah. Was- I so that was on that was on my list of what the heck. Oh, all right. Yeah. So there you go. You just perennially have Trump question mark on here, too. Well, so. gosh, I mean, it's <laughs> been a week even, for him. We're not going to go there. No. So anyway, yeah, what the heck? All of it. All of it. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you very much, Chris, for giving us your time. Yes, always, um, always enjoyable. It is. It is always enjoyable. And I'm very much looking forward to you uh, coming back to Swan Lake. You're not going to be here for very long, so we're going to have to work really hard to make sure this aligns. Yes. Uh, well, um, first of all, fear not. Uh, it will align because uh, uh, amongst my many motivations for being on your podcast is to be the first and oh, only fourth time. time. Yes. Uh, wow. So, we so need some we're going to make that. this happen. I'll be home for a couple weeks. And, and no, I seriously, Mike and Tammy, thank you. Really, sincerely. I, I so enjoy coming on. And I thank you for what you do. Um, it, it, especially, and if you allow me to be serious here for a second, is is promoting civil dialogue, you know, in in our community uh, via your podcast and otherwise, uh, because you know that I'm a big proponent of that. I'm a big uh, I'm a big supporter of respectful discussion on important issues that you know lets people speak their minds and and gives everybody a chance to talk to each other respectfully. And I've enjoyed your podcast, especially for that. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you very much. Oh, all right. You guys take care. See yes, you, soon. you as well. All right, thanks. Bye-bye. <laughs> well, that was great. It was great. Again. Was always great. Always great. Always, always great. great. Yes. I, I have, I do have some questions, so I'm, oh, I'm geez. glad n- not for yes. you. Oh, why not? We don't have time in this Come episode. No, probably. It's like but way we, long. Right. But when, for when he comes back, like sure. we have some questions for a part two, um, yep. just some follow-up things. Yeah. So anyway, also... Check out The Guardian out of Britain, folks. It's free, uh, and it'll give you some humanitarian stories about this conflict. I thought that was important as well. I was going to throw also Tim Mack. Do you follow Tim Mack? No. T- huh. Tim Mack, M-A-K. Oh, uh, okay. He's an NPR correspondent, but he you can find him on Twitter. He's also on Threads. Okay. And he's been in Ukraine, and he does daily up- updates on okay. his own, um, and they're fantastic. And great. he's basically been there since the beginning of the war. Great. Okay, so another person to follow. Yeah. That's great. All right, right. so let's wrap it up with something nice. Something nice. Something nice. You go. Barbie hits a billion. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Billion dollar Barbie. Billion dollars. Um, So Mike and I both saw this movie. We liked it. Yep. Yep, that's um, commentary for another day. But only 28 people all of whom have been men, have previously had sole directing credit for movies that hit this mark. And so Greta Gerwig is now first woman on this list. Um, And it's... Like, that's a great accomplishment. Also, I love that it was a woman making this list mm-hmm. for this movie. About women. That is so positive about mm-hmm. women. I love that. Um, no movie in WB history has sold that many tickets that fast. So just all kinds of barriers with this movie. I love it. 
I'm here for it. Um, I think it's interesting because of all the Barbenheimer uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. hype. Sure. Uh, that in the same time span, uh, Oppenheimer has sold about half as many tickets. I'm not saying it's not a good movie. I haven't seen it yet. I want to. I love almost everything that Chris Nolan does. Sure. But I, just, I find it interesting. Like, yeah. they were hyped almost the same. Yep. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and together. Yeah, and together. Yeah. And anyway. Yeah. yeah. Well, Very interesting. Oh, that's cool. It is. It is nice. What do you have? Uh, mine is just sort of like a a wider. <laughs> Minnesota is having a moment, and I don't know if this has always happened or if it's just been in my feeds in the last month. Okay. But Minnesota has been on the top of all kinds of different lists, and I wanted to, like the most recent one I saw. Minnesota was uh, at the top of the travel and leisure top adventure experiences list. Wow. Somebody called Home Bay's top 10 best cities for burger lovers. Wow. Twin Cities. Uh, Twin Cities suburb, I think it was Egan, was uh, made it to Fortune's top best places to live for families. Wow. And also, most recently, the CNBC ranked Minnesota as number five as America's top states for businesses. And it just goes on and on and on. And whether you agree with their metrics or how they came to them, I'm just here for Minnesota being in the top whatever list uh, of all times. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right now, like, it's a great time to be from Minnesota. It's a great time to be in Minnesota. It's always a great time. Come on over. Except. Yeah, right, no. Anyway. It's summertime, so welcome. So come, so come on over. <laughs> that is nice. It is nice. Well, there you have it. Another episode of Flyover Logic. This is Mike and Tammy saying that even if you don't have time to land here, we're glad you found time to listen. <laughs>